Well, welcome here to the True North Podcast. We are so excited today. We have Corey McKenna with us. He is the equipping evangelist, and I've gotten to know Corey over the last few years a little bit and so enjoyed our time together. So uh, yeah, welcome here, Corey. We're so glad that you could join us. It's a joy to be here, man. Together again. Awesome. Yeah, (laughs) it's been, (laughs) I mean, it's been crazy for the last couple of years to make connections work, but uh, I still remember the day that we met. I remember the presentation you gave. It was at a ministerial kind of thing we were at. And afterwards, to be honest, sometimes I tend to sleep through some of the presentations, but I remember saying that, man, that that's good stuff right there. We need to hear more about that. I liked your delivery, your style, everything about it was, it kind of clicked for me. So I appreciate that. So you go by the equipping evangelist. Is that right. probably the most accurate way to describe what you do right now? Yeah. And, uh, you know, a little, little sort of a backstory. Um, have you seen the Mandalorian? A- absolutely. Do you like it? Absolutely. Okay. Is that okay to say on your, on your oh, show? For sure. Okay. My son and I watched all the way through season one and two, kind of well, dying to see the third season. it was inspired by that. And so just kind of a, kind of a quick sort of theological basis for this. There's, there's three uses of the word evangelist okay. in the New Testament. Two of those are what we would flag as the work of. Do the work of, of an evangelist, Paul says to Timothy. Right. Philip was doing that work, which is sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. But Ephesians 4 introduces sort of this leadership role that we would qualify as an equipping evangelist. It talks about pastors, teachers, and evangelists right. equipping the saints. We would say that's a discipleship role huh. in, the, in the local church to actually disciple saints to multiply gospel ministry. So... What about the Mandalorian? Well, the idea of the equipping evangelist doesn't mean I'm the best one or the only one. As a matter of fact, what it means is like the Mandalorian presupposes there's a bunch more. So I'm looking for right. them. And so what we do as a ministry is we train other equipping evangelists to train other equipping evangelists. So we multiply gospel ministry in and through the local church. That's the heartbeat of the, of the ministry. That's kind of a brilliant idea too. Instead of a one-man show, if you think about the mul- multiplication element of ministry, your potential reach is infinitely higher if you can somehow manage to train disciplers, to train disciplers, to train disciplers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I could certainly sow five gospel seeds on my own. I could right. talk with my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister or neighbors or whoever. Uh, but if I equip, say, 10 people to do the same thing, we right. multiply gospel gospel ministry right. through the local church. Yeah. And I think if we're being honest these days, that's that's less and less common to have disciplers discipling. Like we tend to create a lot of converts, if we're being honest, like if we're willing to hold a mirror up to ourselves these days. Maybe there was a time in which that was more the case, but in my time in ministry, we tend to make converts per se, but but that transactional rate to the next stage where they start reaching out into their world it's a lot lower than we would hope these days, I would think. Yeah, so true, Chris. And I think that if the early church didn't have a disciple-making mentality, we wouldn't be here. Right. I don't want to oversimplify, no, but it's, no, true, it's true, right? I mean, it, I, I came under heavy conviction uh, as a new Christian that, wait a sec, I don't think the goal is to be, the goal is to make. Jesus said, go right. and be disciples. No, be disciples who make disciples is, right. is the commission. And so, yeah, absolutely true. We want to be disciple-makers, not just disciples. And so, yeah, that's, that's a different level of commitment. It's first Corinthians, you know, before, before we rolled here, you prayed and uh, you talked about example and that that's really at the heart uh, of, uh, of my passion for the Lord is to be an example. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's discipleship in a nutshell. And it, it also kind of underscores Jesus's model for ministry. If you think about it, instead of writing letters to his disciples elsewhere and kind of checking in on them every once in a while, he brought them along each and every day. And that whole idea of 24 hours a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they were watching him absorbing by osmosis sometimes as much as by dictation and teaching, just so watching him live the life of God in yeah. the flesh. Yeah, it's so true. And that, that you think of what he did. He he had these these twelve. I mean, one was a dud, we Paul replaced him. Right? But but the, we had these twelve and he created this multiplicative movement yeah. through twelve men and he poured his and even at his three, really. Yeah. So he discipled those uh, those men relationally. Yeah. Follow me. I mean, I will make you fishers of men. And yeah, yeah absolutely I think it's so important that we have those relationships with those we're discipling and the authentic, vulnerable, all those words that in the West we kind of tend to to shy away from. Catchphrases at times Mm. because we've overused them, but there's a reason why they became so important to us as a church. They're good phrases. Yeah. And they're... (laughs) 
they're incarnational phrases. I, I keep coming back to this idea of incarnation, uh, not just that Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God among us, which we know, but the fact that ministry itself at so many fundamental levels is incarnational. It's not just a, it's not just a transfer of information. It's a life lived that affects another life lived that affects another life lived. And, and I think the pandemic has taught a lot of us that is that technology is wonderful. We appreciate it, but human connection and the kind of discipleship that can happen between two human beings face to face mm. is impossible to replicate any other way. You're onto something, man. When, when John actually says, I have more to, to write to you, but these things must be said face to face. That yeah. actually in the Greek means mouth to mouth. It's very <laughs> intimate. I know we don't do that, but yeah, good thing we're a little bit distanced here, but really it means it means that there are things so intimate and incarnational yeah. that we want to share one to the other that we have to do them in person, face to face. Absolutely true. And, yeah. Go ahead. No, Good sorry. Point. No, that, that's, that's so, so true. And, uh, you know, I love to ask the question as it applies to, to disciple, uh, disciple making. You know, we, ha- we do some gospel leadership training with, with church leaders okay. and, and, and folks like that. And you ask the question, how many seeds are in an apple? About seven seeds in an apple? How many apples are in a seed? Think about that. Right. And that's the right. multiplicative value of disciples being disciple yeah. makers. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're after. We're after the orchard, not just the apple. Uh, that's a good right. image, man. Yeah. That really is. And if you think about the underground church movements in history and around the world right now, they're not centralized through one public figure, through one large building. Like in China, the, mul- the mass explosion of churches is happening just like that. It's like one apple drops, seeds, six, seven more trees, they drop and it continues. Totally Tens true. of millions coming totally from that. True. Totally okay, so true. Totally true. Major theological question for you. Yeah. Really, really important. If you're the Mandalorian, then who is Yoda? In your, <laughs> who's baby Yoda in your organization that's there? That's a good question. I haven't even thought about that. Let me let me get back to you on that. That's a good question. Yeah, Baby Yoda. What was, uh, Grogu? Yeah, Grogu. Grogu right? yeah. <laughs> I, I need a Grogu, a you mascot yes. for the cross current. Yeah, sure. someone to attract yeah. the, the generation yeah. that's watching. So your history. Tell me just a little bit about yourself, about how cross current came to be, and how you found yourself in what is kind of a unique position. Like you're equipping evangelists, role the kind of stuff that you do. There's not a lot of people out there doing what you do, which is part of what I think is so valuable. How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Yeah, so I was raised uh, religious, with, but no relationship with God. I was radically saved at 22 years of age, came to saving knowledge of Jesus, and uh, was a corporate guy. So I was, you know, I was doing corporate sales. Uh, God was very kind. He was he was blessing uh, the, the the fruit of my labors there. But I was called to ministry, and I was kind of a late bloomer, started school at 27 years of age, and mm-hmm. started pastoring almost right away. So I was just okay. a few years in, maybe five years in, pastoring a church, trying to be faithful, and uh, and someone asked me to, sh- to, to equip them to share the gospel. And I remember thinking, I'm not super comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. I can do that with prayer. I can do that with fellowship. Yep. I can do that with worship and discipleship. But Equipping by example to share the gospel wasn't something I'd done at all. And the, the the terrible thought occurred to me that I'd been teaching and preaching that, but I just wasn't modeling that in my own walk, in my own witness. And mm-hmm. so the Lord just opened up a door for me to go to Southern California of all places, and I encountered what I would affectionately call a worshiping and witnessing church, whereby uh, there was a group of believers from literally all over the world and uh, majoring in the majors, the gospel front and center, and we were praying for folks and sharing this good news and and equipping others to do so. But what I kind of got that was more than I kind of bargained for, Chris, is um, and kind of circling back when I was a kid, uh, and this will relate to your question, when I was a kid, uh, I, I did some research. I had this this huge affection for for tigers, white tigers. Okay. I tell the story a lot. On a gold leash or just yeah, white no, tigers? No, not necessarily, no. Uh, I had this this poster on my wall of a of a white tiger. And uh, so I'm, a young, I'm an older guy now. But when I was younger, pre-internet, I did s- some basic research. What would it take to own a pet tiger? What could go wrong in Halifax, Nova right. Scotia? <laughs> Owning a pet tiger. But what I found out was that what happens is the, the cub is removed from its mother immediately it's raised around your family and it generally grows up very domesticated very safe has no idea what it is its identity is lost in its surroundings in my experience that was sort of me with evangelism Mm. Uh, my identity as an ambassador for king jesus was lost in my surroundings and so when i went to southern california by god's grace my first gospel outreach team leader was a man named tony tony the tiger i call him because here's what happens. What I didn't say is if that tiger cub grows up, becomes a full-size tiger, if it sees 
another true tiger, mm-hmm. its God-given identity is unleashed, and now it becomes something entirely different. Right. It becomes what it was created to be. Right. I just needed to see a tiger. I'd never seen an evangelism tiger before. True enough. Now, side note, I would say we all need tigers in every discipline of the Christian life. Marriage tigers and yeah. you know, work tigers and, and ministry tigers. And But I needed an evangelism tiger. And so God used the example of Tony the tiger to unleash in me that sort of ferocious effect of gospel witness. And so the mission of the cross current, I came back 07, started this equipping evangelism ministry called the cross current, which is really at the heart of it all. Tigers training, tigers training, tigers to be an example, to see an example and to help churches to normalize sharing the gospel. That was 07. So it's been a little while, but that's the short story. That's a cool story though. I I love that image. If you really think about it, there's a power there, an untapped power that's been domesticated really, that's been lost to comfort. I don't know, lost to maybe just not a lot of courage, maybe lost to the pressures of society. I don't know, but could be a lot of things. I think we're going to get into a little bit of why are people scared? Because we all have anxiety and fear associated with sharing our faith. And, you know, I believe it's, it's the one Christian discipline that we definitively take a, an intentional step outside the saved safe camp of believers into enemy territory. And that's not always going to feel fantastic. No, it wasn't. Whether that's the water cooler or whether that's the uh, downtown core. Yeah, it wasn't always pleasant when Paul did it, and uh, we shouldn't expect anything otherwise. Yeah, but I think there's ways that we can be warm and winsome about it too. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'd love to talk about that as our conversation progresses today, so that's very cool. Yeah. One other interesting thing about you, I remember seeing, I saw a picture, your hair hasn't always been the length that it is right now. No, I'm happy to have hair at my age, (laughs) but no, it used to be significantly longer. I was a singer in a hard rock band, and uh, and, uh, yeah, I was up to no good into my teen years, and God lifted me out of that miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and he gave me a new song and i'm singing it (laughs) what uh favorite band of all time wow favorite band of all time i mean i was a big bon jovi fan (laughs) i know are we talking living on a prayer here wanted Uh, dead or alive i I, I was a big fan so i like some of the kind of the 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 more cryptic stuff okay yeah i I would say probably you know wanted dead or alive and even the newer stuff but um but then circling back i I liked journey a lot and and sort of singers bands you know i was a singer in a band and so i I really uh, appreciate uh but i like a variety of music but i appreciate uh uh, good singers and bands elvis is probably my favorite of all time Interesting. I adopted his hairstyle, yeah. and here I am. Hey? He started it. Maybe, maybe there will be a wing of the cross current suit. It'll be rock and roll evangelism. That'll be wonderful. You'll, I'll let you yeah, know when that's do uh, it. Let's that'll do work it. around sure. here. Very cool. So let's talk just a little bit more about evangelism as an idea and as a practice within the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about what you do is you interview people on, or have at least at various places, interview people on the street, just kind of cold conversation with people, almost like tonight's show, Jay Leno style, like questions that are meaningful, like, like eternal kind of questions yeah. and get honest answers from people. Yep. So uh, one of the questions that I've been thinking about a lot as a pastor, as I lead a church and look at what's happening in the world in your time of having gospel conversations with people on the street cold call whatever it is what has changed about the people you encounter and their reaction to what you're saying over the last 15 or 20 whatever number of years you've been doing this what have you noticed has changed in that time period yeah that is a great great question chris i i think if we if we lean into the illustration of evangelism the gospel being like sowing seed so in our training we borrow that imagery it's biblical it's clear uh, I would say that there's definitely been a hardening mm. of the soil uh, due to probably inactivity. I don't want to be unkind, but I think mm-hmm. that if you if you don't allow your garden, or uh, not allow, if you don't intelligently cultivate your garden, there's a yeah. classic old book by, I think his last name's Alan, called As a Man Thinketh, a okay. little tiny book. And his sort of thesis statement is if we don't intelligently cultivate the gardens of our minds, weeds will naturally grow in there. It For takes sure. effort. Yeah. And I do believe that there's just been a, there's been an inactivity that has really caused the hardening of the soil of hearts in Canada. And so mm. I would say in a very short, I would say 10 years. Yeah. We've it's seen been a rapid. very different culture in terms of response to the gospel, even fundamental knowledge of the Bible and the stories we all grew up with of Moses and yeah. the parting of the Red Sea. Very, very little knowledge of those fundamentals of the faith, yeah. even, I would say. And it's 
it's happened in, in a shockingly short period of time. I remember watching a, some television commentator saying, if you grew up in 12th century France and you were to return somehow 200 years later, like 14th century France, very little had changed in like 200 years. Life was mm. relatively the same. You disappear here for five years and you barely recognize the culture and the technology that we're interacting with on a daily basis. Absolutely. We had friends that were missionaries. They went away for about 10 years to South America and they came back and it was, it was culture shock coming home. Right. It wasn't some pleasant kind of experience. It was culture shock coming home. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of intrigued by your analogy. You're kind of riffing off the parable of the sower, right? Like yeah. that's kind of the idea that you're working right. with. When you say inactivity, are you thinking inactivity of the church? Or do you think inactivity of the average person these days not willing to think through the hard things? Is this Was it a church thing that we have missed? Or is it more so that society as a whole has kind of decided we don't want to ask the big questions anymore? Yeah, wow. I think it's probably a mixture of both. That's the safe answer. But I do think yeah. if we look to Romans 1, I don't think things have changed much since Paul's thesis in Romans 1, that you know, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Paul says some very hard things, yeah. but clearly we see the world is on a trajectory uh, because of the natural bent that man has. Jesus knew what was in man's heart, and obviously there's, it, it, it starts off bad and it continues in that way. Right. So I think there's that aspect that it seems like it is getting worse the world does seem to be getting worse. The trajectory, it just seems to be determined to run that path. But we're here to right. shine light into that. Right. We're, we're here to be salt. And I do think that um, if we were more actively, and I'm not just talking the pastor's job, I think right. we need a wholesale change of thinking right. that uh, the church is is supposed to be for believers. Should we be explanatory? Absolutely. Should we be inviting? Absolutely. Right. But church is really the, the equipping time for us to go we we gather together to go together yeah and so i think if if every single ambassador of christ went with gospel in hand uh confident um faithful had examples and we were just having those conversations even opening the bible in public Mm. is not something that happens much so i've got this here's a little freebie it's fun uh i I bring my bible everywhere and i mean the paper one this is nothing wrong with this no fair enough i'm with you on this the paper paper one and i'll put it uh, you know, on the coffee table, if I'm at a, at a coffee right. shop, I'll put it in a, you know, if I'm at the airport, I'll re- open it up and read it. And you will have a lot of people re- react to that. Right. It's just not, not usual. No. I think if we just in, in that way, just conversationally, relationally, uh, introduced God and his word into mm-hmm. more common situations, I think we would have a different culture. Right. over time. But have that conversation. I, I think a, a metric I'm very comfortable with as it applies to results in gospel witness is conversations. You and I can equip our, our, our church to have conversations. Have yeah. a conversation. Walk across the room. One guy used to write that. Great, great thesis. Walk across the room. Yeah. Have that conversation. You're taking your trash out. Have that conversation. You know, Instead um, of measuring it on the final results and the response of the person, which you have no control over, and don't. neither did the best evangelists of all Absolutely time. Absolutely true. But you can control the number of times you at least open that door and allow someone to potentially walk through. Yeah, and, and in the context of, of seed sowing, Chris, what would it right. look like if Dresden Community Church was committed to viewing your Christmas Eve service? I mean, that is a great For opportunity sure. to invite someone. But what if that invitation was more about seed watering, not just seed sowing? Just to explain that, what if we equipped our saints to have a, a cup of coffee with a family member or friend who doesn't know Jesus, mm. share your gospel testimonial? answer some of these hard questions, or at least get back to them if you don't know the right. answers. Don't make them up, Christian, yeah. right? <laughs> you get Ask your pastor. No, it's so true. Right? It's but so then, true. then they come to the Christmas service having heard the gospel, Yeah. and your message can water the seed that's already been sown, but right. you can't water unsown seed. So I think we've been in this sort of holding pattern that church invitations are wonderful. Yeah. I'm not saying don't invite people to church. No. But what I am saying is how we can all be co-laborers in Christ, I think, is if we go and we sow and then we invite. That makes a lot of sense. I remember hearing like Billy Graham, obviously, at least the most famous evangelist of the last century or so. For good I mean, reason. Yeah, for good reason. <laughs> a man of yeah. utter integrity, which mm-hmm. nowadays 
oh man, do I respect that. Mm -hmm. When you see how many Christian leaders have failed to finish well, have fallen, like to see Billy Graham with the influence and the power that he would have exerted finish well, to me is such an encouragement. But I remember people used to think that it was this, and I don't want to use the word magical in a negative sense, but as if you went to a Billy Graham rally, all of a sudden people would go from a zero acquaintance with biblical truth to a follower of Jesus in 90 minutes. But they did a study and they went back and they interviewed and checked in with everybody who made a decision for Christ on those nights and found out on average, there were 11 previous points of contact Mm. before they ever made a decision to follow Jesus at a Billy Graham event. There were 11 different seeds, 11 different waterings of conversations with a friend, invitations to church, something dropped off for someone to read. So it wasn't Billy Graham was doing the harvesting. But a lot of times he was already working with watered and planted seeds. So he was the one calling them across the finish line. That's a very interesting point, Chris. And I would say if we were to circle back and reevaluate current evangelistic results, I think there's probably a longer road than that. I hear 11 won't do it at this point yeah, in time. Because yeah. I think what we see, and we always use this illustration, it's not ours, but we borrowed it. Borrow this if it's, it's okay for you. Uh, you know, Acts chapter 2, Peter Jewish audience. I mean, here's right. Peter. It's the day of Pentecost. He has a Jewish audience. And what that means is they have the knowledge and the worldview right. to handle the gospel message. They've right? got they, boxes to put this you in. You got it. Yeah. it you know, they, they are able to understand. Peter basically preaches the sermon, the Messiah's come, right? You've killed him. Repent. That's a hard message. Yeah. And it's sort of like a Romans road type message. I mean, you go to the southern states in the 50s and 60s, they right. had that foundation. It's right. sort of a Jewish type audience. They're just putting the pieces together. They've got the right pieces on the table. Let's just assemble them so they can see them clearly. Yeah. Well, my conversations at universities and colleges in Canada in 20, whatever we're in now, 2022, uh, are very, very different. They're more like Paul's ministry in Acts 17 to the Gentiles. Yeah. They didn't have that foundation. So what Paul does, Paul actually goes back to the beginning. Right. He has to tell the whole story. He grounds it in creation. He grounds it in creation. Yeah. And uh, and if you actually look at the results, Paul was a pretty decent preacher. I like Paul. He's yeah. a good guy. Yeah. Uh, it says actually that that a bunch of them just rejected Paul altogether. Right. Uh, it says that some reflected, we need to hear more. Right. That's probably a common response with my family and friends. And yeah. But only a few re- repented and followed. Right. I mean, should we expect different results than that? Uh I don't think so. Mm. It just, it really is a, uh, a, a more Gentile Greek thinking culture. So I think we have to be patient with the process, if I can say it that way. And these people who haven't heard aren't starting on the 50 yard line. They're back at the one yard line, right? Like your average 1950s Southern U.S. kind of person was already at the 50 yard line. They had Absolutely. a working knowledge of sin. They had a sense of the idea that there's probably a God out there, even if I don't want to follow him. They had a sense of what the word salvation meant, what mm-hmm. the cross was about. And and all you had to do, I remember Tim Keller once saying, all you had to do back in the day was connect the dots. Just right. like we were talking about here. All you had to do was connect the dots. And many of them already felt this like indwelling desire that they knew that they had a wrong part of their life, sin. They knew something was wrong and they wanted someone to take that pain, that guilt, that, that imperfection away. Mm. Nowadays though, I don't get that sense, like that people have any of those building blocks, like just like you said. Yeah, to, illustratively, to I often say, you know, what I used to do when I was a new Christian, and I was well-intentioned, I was passionate. Uh, zeal without knowledge is not a great thing, scripturally, though. <laughs> and so what I would do is I would take the centerpiece, picture a jigsaw puzzle, the centerpiece of Christ and the cross, and I would start to show it to all the people uh, in my life who didn't know Jesus. Right. And I would say, isn't this beautiful? And I'd do my best to... To, to describe it and esteem it. And I was sincere and, and I was just trying to do my best. But what they lacked was the the, the box the cover with yeah. the whole picture. Yeah. But it's kind of worse than that now because at least in Billy Graham's time and place, generally they had the right pieces on the table and you just had to show them the picture. Now right. they've got the wrong pieces. Yeah, wrong assumptions. I mean, oh my goodness. The, just everything is, is, is opposite at this point. So we really have to show them the whole picture place the centerpiece, but I think that necessitates dealing with the wrong pieces they have as well, right. which can get a little bit tricky. We have to be careful. The Lord's servant, 2 Timothy 2 says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right. kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting with what? With gentleness. Oy. I know. Hey? I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, 
if you there's a difference between the cultural representation of a Christian in 2022 and your average Christian. Mm-hmm. I get really annoyed when I watch certain news outlets, even CNN. Let's pick on one that everybody knows. I feel like when they get a Christian on there, they find the wildest one they can get their hands sure. on. They wind them up and yeah. then they give them a microphone That's and true. try and capture That's the shortest true. sound, but that they have. Yeah. And so, so often I feel like I'm watching going like, they don't speak for me. They don't speak for us. And right. it's a frustration. So I, I think there's a lot of caricatures, right? Mm. Like that idea of an exaggerated feature of the Christian world, the Christian life, the Christian belief system that's floating around out there. And one of those is anger. Like when Mm. you talk about not being quarrelsome, this is not an excuse to avoid the tough issues. Like I get it. Like I, I get both sides of this discussion. It's not an excuse to hide when you're called to stand. But I feel like that not quarrelsome, peaceful, gentle posture is really absent today in a lot of the discourse. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a practical reason maybe for that, Chris. Maybe it's just people get pushed and pushed and pushed. They don't have a voice in the public square. They get frustrated. And there's just that human response that I'm pent up almost. But I think theologically, I mean, I have walked a lot of miles with a lot of fellow equipping evangelists, wonderful men and women of God who I love dearly. But I would say theologically, on some level, some of these equipping evangelists, I think, more closely identify with with an Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet yeah. than maybe yeah. a New Covenant, New Testament ambassador. Locust, Very different ministry. Locust and honey in, a, in the middle of the desert kind of a mentality. Yeah, yeah. and so I think if we, if we just, again, follow that illustration, you've got an Old Testament prophet, they are addressing a group of people who have the oracles of God. They've right. got the promise of the Messiah. It sounds a lot like Acts chapter 2 is what it does. Right. But then when we when we turn the pages into the New Testament, now we've got uh, the, 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 the nations now are hearing the good news, and we've got people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and, and, yeah. uh, and they don't have this base knowledge that you and I even have in the West. And I think it does, this is why Paul now uh, uses these sort of adjectives of, of gentleness and, and be reasonable, right. be warm and winsome. And uh, yeah. I, th- I think we've got we've to be careful to realize that it's not just what we say, it's how we say what we say. It's vital, man. I, you should almost repeat that because I feel like for those in the back, like this gets lost so often in our gospel conversations because right. Martin Luther used to say that at least it's attributed to him. You can fall off the horse on either side, right? Hmm. You can fall off the horse to the left, going too far one way. And then when you get back on, you overcompensate and you fall off the other side. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when it comes to evangelism and just the position of the church today, either they acquiesce and just conform to culture, right? Or just right. go so soft that you're no different than the world around you, mm-hmm. or they go so far on the other side of things that it becomes combative and angry and hostile instead of winsome and reasonable yeah. and the challenge is to ride right in the middle right and right. and i think that's a challenge for all of us and i think you put you put kind of a a fine point on that when you said oh, there's a lot of frustration out there and and i feel that too as a follower of jesus it's not hard to feel maligned and mistreated and i'm not talking like capital p persecution but it's, it's not hard to see ways in which there is not a mutual respect or a mutual tolerance for true. Christian ideas in the public sphere. Yeah, very true. So. And here we have our Lord. I mean, the, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Right. A great little book, if you've never read Chris, is a, is a showstopper, and you can read it very quickly, is The Grace and Truth Paradox by... Oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit me. And it's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. Okay. Uh, uh, amazing little book that brings those two concepts together mm. uh, in the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. And that, that's, that's who we're following. So we're trying. We're trying. So let's talk Acts 17. You brought it up. It's, I think, one of the most beautiful examples of evangelism in the New Testament, just that idea in Mars Hill. And, and what, what, what blows me away is two things, and maybe we'll talk about both of them. The first is this. Uh, Paul starts with creation, right? Like he starts from the beginning. Mm-hmm. How do we... How do we emulate that if we're dealing with, and it's true because I routinely run into people that ask me, why do we have a cross-shaped thing at the top of our church building? Oh, wow. yeah, it's sure. honestly like we're, we're that far off of a, of a quote unquote Christian society or yeah. Christendom. They're like, who is, and what, who is this? What did Jesus do? This idea that they don't even know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. How do you, in just a practical sense, when you're talking with somebody, how do you start to frame that picture if you don't necessarily start immediately with that moment in history that changed everything? That's how, a great. How do you frame that? Is a great picture? question, and I and I think it's interesting. And if we just back up the truck a little bit, Chris, um, Paul actually starts with the resurrection. I don't know if he was thinking of Peter's results. Maybe, okay. maybe you heard about this. Peter had a, a had I'm a great try it sermon, myself. right? Three th- the first mega church in Acts two. Like, let's try that, right? Pragmatically, this makes sense to me. And so he leads in with the resurrection, 
And uh, the response is, what does this babbler wish to right. say? That's not positive. So no. Paul gets serious pushback. Yeah. It's then that he resets his presentation and he starts uh, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. I perceive that in every way you're very religious. And then he gets into the unknown God and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, creation yeah. to your point. So what's interesting in Paul's sort of three panel presentation, if I can say it that way, I mean, Paul is so warm and winsome, he's so persuasive. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on in how Paul ministers here. Um, we like to, we sort of have pulled from that in our training. Uh, Paul intimates three big questions. These are not new questions. These questions have been asked uh, since the beginning because they actually flow from every human heart. We right. are made in God's image. Right. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God set eternity in the hearts of people. So we are eternal beings. We are imaging mm. God when we ask these big questions or at least think about them. So the questions we like to ask to basically uh, draw out the three panels of Paul's presentation is the first question is, where do we come from? Mm -hmm. So I, I ask this question all the time to people. It's so non-confrontational. Right. People already think about it. And, yeah. and I don't mean like Halifax or Dresden or London. I mean, originally, right. where did this whole thing start? Yeah. And it's amazing to hear people sort that out. Uh, you you may or not be surprised that the the most prevalent view I encounter these days is a, is a theistic sort of evolution or a God directs evolution. Really? The, yeah, because of DNA and you know genetic information and information science, most people have come to their wits end and said, "Well, yeah, it's really tricky to account for you know information and in books pre 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 it." it, it presupposes an author yeah right? intelligent but, design is, is exactly. a compelling argument yeah be he's in my uh, darwin's black box he started that whole thing maybe right. and so but it's really neat because that first question really does set the trajectory for the other two questions mm -hmm. because if you if you will at least admit in a creator god then now all right. of a sudden you can kind of nudge accountability into that conversation yeah. if or, that is true then correct what? it's a syllog it's syllogism right yeah and so that's the first thing, and Paul starts with that, but then he gets into, well, then uh, what's the meaning of life? Hmm. He gets into, he quotes those Greek poets, right. Epimendus and Aratus, right? And in him we live and move in our being. It's the meaning of life. So it's a second great question to ask hmm. is, what do you think we're here for? What's the meaning of life? We've actually got this little, uh, I'll certainly give you one of these. It's, um, it's a little... A little booklet that I, I give to uh, to friends, family, uh, folks we meet in the community, and uh, the the three big questions of life and death matters, and it's got a sub question to bring clarity to the to the main question: Where do we come from? Were yeah. we created, or did we evolve? And then it gives a biblical response: What's the meaning of life? Who or what are we truly living for? Hmm. That's the one that really, really stumps people because maybe they've never thought about it in those terms Not before. Not those terms. Yeah. And you know, thoughts of happiness always enter the um the picture, but then it's very interesting, Chris, because when when an unbeliever um a, when they when they when they prescribe something, that is to say, when they say they want something better or they want they want something more, it yeah. really does presuppose a standard of what should be. Right. So I'll often say to them, "So, what if what makes me happy?" is entirely different than what makes you happy. Is that okay? Right. And you can get some pretty extreme examples that they have issue with. Right. Right. And so what they're doing, they're imaging their creator because we all have common base desires. Yeah. We want good things. Yeah. Because we're human beings. Absolutely. We're made in God's image. But I love this one. And then the third part of Paul's presentation, what happens after we die? The sub question is, does my life affect my forever? It's a neat question. Yeah. And so... Your, your, uh, your question was, how do we sort of um, kind of introduce these concepts? I think uh, just asking good questions, yeah. sincerely listening. Can I say sincerely listening? Yeah. You mean not, not just, not just thinking what I'm going to say Correct. next in response to what you have to say? Sincerely listen. There are some very intelligent people that I don't agree with. Right. That's not the issue. The issue no. isn't about belief. The issue is about truth. Yeah. Amen very different. That. It People is. believe whatever they want to believe. Yeah. But the question is, is what I believe true? Yeah. That's the question. And and I found just some of the kind of areas that I've been called to teaching over the last while, this whole concept of truth is is not just under siege. It's almost been unmoored from from any real logical mm. definition of the word truth. Like this this phrase, my truth or your truth. Sure. 
it's just, it's just like a fly in the ointment for me. Like I can't, I, I kind of grate a little bit every time I hear it because that whole concept is really a, a dismembering and abuse of the idea of truth because one is an opinion and one is a statement that corresponds to reality, right? Absolutely. And you may have your own opinion, but you don't have your own reality. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to people about Christianity, this is one of the number one kind of pushbacks that I get mm-hmm. is that, okay, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that you might like uh, Rocky Road ice cream, but I don't like Rocky Road ice cream. I like vanilla or whatever. Like that might be your opinion, but that's not true for me. But they use the word truth mm-hmm. and it's impossible to have a version of truth that you live in and a version of truth that I live right. in. So uh, do you ever encounter that kind of like we often would put this under the umbrella of like postmodernism or whatever, this idea of like post truth. Do you encounter that kind of resistance when oh, you're doing these conversations? All the time. I mean, absolutely. Th- th- this is a lot of the things we're struggling with in culture right now is when I define and determine truth, uh, then it's kind of the, uh, it's kind of the, I get out of jail free card right, right now. Right. And that, that's a scary society. Like the, the outcome of that can be very, and I think dicey. we're witnessing the tremors of it right we now. We really are. And so Jesus claimed to be the very essence and nature yeah, of truth. Amen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so I, th- I think one of the important things that we, we need to just, help people understand in conversation is with all of us, our actions speak louder than our words. People say things.